I would invite you to have your Bible open to Ruth if you have it with you. There's some Bibles in the pews. You can also use your own or you can use your phone. I'm excited to start this series for Advent where we're going to be in Ruth. And uh, it actually, for four chapters, 85 verses, it is a remarkable book about preparing for the coming of Christ. The core message in that is Christmas. How do we prepare ourselves for Christmas? And I really want to invite you to think about this book in that way. Please pray with me. Lord, we come before you um, in the midst of maybe worshiping a different time than we normally do, in the midst of whatever busyness looked like for us this morning or this week. And we want to focus our attention, our hearts, our minds on you this morning. We want to be open to hear what you have to say. And Lord, uh, we also come in a place of need. There are many things we lack, whether it is answers, whether it is guidance, whether it is healing, whether it is direction, or whether it is hope. And Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would instill this in us this morning. Please use us to encourage one another and be attentive to the movement of your spirit and be hopeful for your coming advent. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be holy and pleasing to you. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. One of the core themes for this morning and for the book of Ruth is this, that Ruth takes us on a journey from emptiness to fullness. That is one of these core themes she is doing that's happening through this whole book, four chapters, emptiness to fullness. We are going to be in emptiness a little bit. But some of that in the, in the scope of the story in Ruth or in the Bible or in the gospel, it is waiting. And nobody likes waiting. If I looked around here, does anybody like waiting? None of us like waiting. <laughs> and I think about that uh, because you can look at all these examples, all these examples you see in real life. A, a family or a group of friends goes and sits down in a restaurant, and then they immediately, um, five seconds before the waiter even comes to say hello to them, they have their phones out. No, they're not really waiting for much. Or I think about how difficult it is to teach about patience with my kids. They don't want to wait for anything, even if I can promise something better. The whole scenario, you can have a marshmallow now, or you can have two marshmallows in five minutes. They'll probably take what they can get in that moment. Um, maybe they'll learn. Um, or have you ever gone to a store going to buy something, and then you go to the line where you think you need to go, and you see how long it is, and you think, I'm not doing this. Whatever I was going to buy is not worth it. I think about theme parks. Do you remember theme parks? It's been a long time since I've been to a theme park. I can't even remember the last time I went. But now I have a hard time in my mind thinking, would I wait an hour long to get in that ride at Disney World? I don't know if I would. Maybe I would. I'm not sure. I've been to Disney World a long time. The question of whether we're willing to wait or not completely depends on whether we think that that offer, that invitation, that result is worth waiting for. You can think about that in your life. Is it worth waiting for? Is it worth waiting for it? And if it isn't, we typically move on. Do you know what you're waiting for? Do you know what you're waiting for in life? And this goes beyond just this season of Advent and Christmas, and this season of 2021. And as a follower in Jesus, I can say in part I do, that I'm waiting for Christ to return. I'm waiting for Jesus to come back. 
I'm waiting for him to bring rescue for the world, to bring relief. I'm waiting for his light to shine so the whole world could see, to bring an end to pain, to bring an end to all the suffering and that there will be a peace, his peace that will have no end. Advent, like I said in the beginning of our worship, places us in the tension of God has come and come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Is what God has promised and is coming worth you waiting for it? Is it worth you waiting for it? And if so, what are you supposed to do while you wait? What are you supposed to do while you wait? Even if you have no idea how long it's going to take, is it worth waiting for it? One of my favorite quotes, and Fleming Rutledge says this. I may have said this last year, but I'll repeat this again. That every year, Advent begins in the dark. Every year, Advent begins in the dark. And that is exactly how the book of Ruth starts. It starts with, you know, all these questions in mind of how long are we waiting? What's going to come? How is God's coming going to provide for what we need? And it starts very difficult in the time of Judges. In the sequence of your Bible, Ruth comes right after Judges. In the time of Judges. And what's incredible about Ruth, as we'll look at in this first chapter, it is this story of faithful women who are leaning in to faithfulness in the midst of unfaithfulness. But you can look at one of the last verses. It is the last verse of Judges. And it tells you a lot about the context of what's happening in Ruth. The verse, I think, will be up for you. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. This is dark. You don't have to go far into the land of Judges, however familiar we are, to know how dark the book is. And one of the really difficult realities of the book is that many of the evil acts that take place in the book involve this terrible story and reality for women in Judges. So really, Ruth contrasts so much of what's happening in Judges because you see these things happen in different cities around Israel, and you realize women aren't safe, that they're under threat, they're vulnerable. And then here enters this story of Naomi and Elimelech's family, and you think the worst has happened because the worst does happen, and you wonder how the story is going to take on. And then the very first verse tells us that there was a famine, which is the inciting event, a famine. We know these global community-altering events, a famine. And one of the themes that I've already mentioned is emptiness. I think about that, emptiness. What is this emptiness that's taking place in this land where it's talking about crops, food? But we know that emptiness in a different kind of way. We know what it is like to live without community, relationships. We know what it is like to live without. We've had to do it. And we start off with this famine. In those days, the judges ruled there was a famine. And we learn of a man from Bethlehem, a man from Bethlehem in Judah. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, the first thing I want to tell you about Elimelech is what these meaning of the, his name means. Because all these different meanings in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they say something. And we're, sometimes we miss some of the details along the way. Elimelech means God is king. Imagine if that's what your name meant. God is king. And he is with his wife, who is Naomi, as you read on. They have two sons, Malon and Kilion. And I ask you this, why do they leave? Well, okay, there was a famine. There was a famine, right? 
well, this is already some embedded irony here because Bethlehem means house of bread. I don't know if you knew that. That's where the bread would happen from Israel, the house of bread. So the house of bread failed to feed this family. Famine's happening. The house of bread failed to feed this family. And the one whose God is king, Elimelech, God is king, flees the king's territory because of famine. There's some irony there that they, they don't, there's not enough food. God is king is leaving the country. God is king is leaving. They left because they thought the hope was elsewhere. They thought there was hope somewhere else in a place called Moab. And what you need to know about Moab is this, that it was historically the enemies of Israel, the people you don't talk to down the street. <laughs> and, you know, there's all these different sort of stories after stories after stories of the people of Moab doing unkind, evil acts towards Israel. But they go to Moab because they hear that there's possibility of food, possibility of being fed. That wouldn't be a reason, right? Which is already different than what God's people were asked to do. They were asked to stay in faith, to trust, to be there, and to intercede. And God would bless them. There was a relationship that would be come about through blessing for them, except they leave. They go elsewhere. And instead of finding the hope they look for, they, not, they don't just find famine. They find the worst. Elimelech, God is king, dies. And then Elimelech, sons... Naomi's sons, they take on wives, and they don't take on Israelite wives. They take on Moabite wives. Why are they doing this? Because they're trying to re-put together the family, so they take on wives, Orpah and Ruth. And then here's a detail that's just snuck in there, but it's significant, that Ruth and Orpah are married to the sons for 10 years. 10 years, and they don't have children. It's an embedded reality in the story of the, the emptiness or barrenness they're experiencing in their family that they don't have children for 10 years. And then after that, that doesn't result in new children like you expect. You're, in, you're conditioned to think it's coming, and instead, the sons die. And this tension in this, the story is what we feel, that how, this story, how is the story going to end? How does a story like this end for good? How does a story like this end for good? What will happen to these women and this family line? We're meant to, to feel this. And you might wonder when you take a step back from your life and you wonder, how is my life going to end? Where is my life going? What ultimately is going to bring about good and purpose in my life? Do I have to go to Moab to find it? What happens if I end up in famine or I end up in the emptiness of Moab and all of a sudden everything comes apart? In this series, what we're going to proclaim is what God asks us to do while we're waiting. So I ask you to remember this, that for today, this Sunday, while we wait, I ask you to place your hope in the coming king. And not in other things that promise things to you that might be easier and provide comfort. The one true hope and provision and fullness comes through the coming king. Because this is a hopeless situation, just in five verses We've gone from this is complete tragedy, and here is the story arising out of complete tragedy. And Naomi's only hope is not to stay in Moab for as long as she's been away from Bethlehem and Judah, but to go back. And so you read in verse 6, if you still have your Bibles open, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord has come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. They prepared to go home. And if you miss... You'll miss the force of this whole chapter, 
which has its own lots of details in it. But we'll miss it if we don't experience the way that she probably felt. The desperation, the grief, the barrenness of Naomi. Her life is in complete shambles, and she's completely hopeless and empty. And we're meant to think when we watch her, Ruth, and Orpah, we're meant to think of the other women from the Old Testament who knew barrenness, suffering, and emptiness. Sarah, Rachel struggling to bear a child, and even thinking of Hannah and Elizabeth close to Christ's birth, Hannah and Elizabeth. And yet, don't miss the detail here in verse 6 that God has provided for his people back in Israel. The whole time when none of the food was coming, when it would have been great for it to come, when it come, when it came, then God is providing for his people. And Naomi names this. She says this. She speaks this. She hasn't said anything except we hear that she notices that God's provided aid. It's God's silent action in Ruth. Naomi names it. And in the midst of her grief, she can even see this as good news that results in action. We should do something. We should get close to this. So what's implied as I walk through what happens in this chapter is that she starts to go home with her daughters-in-law. She starts to go home. And as she goes home, she eventually breaks the silence. She tells them, you should turn back. You should go back. Don't come with me. Go back to your own people. You, live, you, you grew up in Moab. They can provide for you in far better ways than I can. Perhaps they can care for you far better than I can. As first, and at first, they actually, Ruth and Orpah, they don't want to back down. They say, we, we're, we're with your family. We are not going to abandon you. Except when Naomi presses, things change really quickly. And the way Naomi says this is very sad. Almost in the way, it's like, get away from this cursed person because nothing good will come when you're connected to me in some way. It sounds very sad. There's a lot of agony in it. Even though... There was still, there is no hope for me. Maybe you can find it somewhere else. And then when she even says, and maybe you felt this at different times in your life, the Lord's anger hand has come against me. I feel God's anger. The God has come against me. Get away from me. Otherwise, you might get caught in the, in the, in, in, in the throes of what's happening. Orpah leaves, and you wonder what Ruth's response will be. How does she respond to this tragedy, this hopelessness? In Ruth 1.15, that's where I'll pick up, it says this. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people, to her gods. Go back with her. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you even, even death separates you from me. Ruth refuses to go back to her people. She commits to go with Naomi. And this almost transforming loyalty moment for Ruth, it is transforming. It's one of the most quoted verses in the book of Ruth. If you look anywhere, you'll find it anywhere. But it says something that, it's surprising to even hear a capacity has a person has the capacity to say. Like the strength of her commitment and the desperation of it. And the way this first chapter describes it is that Ruth really clings to Naomi. The way a husband would leave his father and mother and cling to a wife. It is forging a new and special bond. Naomi will continue to be her family. God will be her God. 
Naomi's people will be Ruth's people. Why? Why does Ruth say this? Ten years in marriage, has this really changed who she is so much? Why does Ruth say this? We don't actually know. It doesn't actually tell us why. The motive for Ruth, we have to maybe wonder why. But one commentator I read this week says this, that what we see here is faith embodied. It's not explained. But this is what faith looks like. It's embodied. Faith for you and I, it probably should be embodied as more is explained. <laughs> what does it look like to live out your faith? Ruth is living it out. She says words to it, but it is more about what she is doing than what she's saying. I mentioned that Ruth is connected to Judges in our Bibles. Judges is right before. But in the Hebrew canon, has a different order of the Old Testament scriptures. I don't know if you knew that. It's called the Tanakh. And Ruth is actually connected with Proverbs. It's connected with the wisdom literature. And it's where at the very end of Proverbs, you hear this woman of wisdom. And Ruth is often connected with that in Ruth 31, where it says, A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. She shouldn't find this way of life beautiful. She shouldn't find Yahweh, the Israelite God, beautiful. And yet she does. And she sees it. And she acts as if it's true. That's where she's drawn. That's where she finds hope. One quote for you that really resonated with me this week is this, that many and perhaps most people come to God because they know and love someone who knows and loves God. Many people come to God because they know and love someone who knows and loves God. Ruth has been shaped by the love in this family. As broken as it's become during this tragedy, she's been shaped by it. Ruth is the one doing the talking now. Naomi is silent. (laughs) Nothing she can say will turn knit Ruth away. She is silent. She doesn't offer Ruth hope, per se, but she lets her come with her. (laughs) And they leave together to go back to Bethlehem. And they return at the time of harvest. If you have your Bible, look at verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem, the house of bread. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirring because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? After all this time, Naomi comes back to town. She's lived at a whole different place all these years. And they maybe don't know anything about her story. They don't know anything about what's happened. But the town stirs. And Naomi, in response to them, she says this. Don't call me Naomi. Naomi actually means pleasantness. Don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has left my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me, and the Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. What's so clear in this is that Naomi doesn't understand necessarily what's taken place, but she blames God, that God has been involved in this tragedy that's happened in her life. And even though people reach out to her with happiness, she feels empty. She's come back to Bethlehem empty. She's, they, maybe, they, maybe their family misjudged the famine. Maybe they should have stayed and sought the Lord, sought provision of the Lord. But she remembers in her mind, when we left to go to Moab, we were full. We had a family. We had hope. But we come back empty. She lacks everything when she lacked nothing. That's how she remembers it. But Naomi, the way she will look at this in the future, looks completely different She is not actually as empty as she seems as she is with her daughter, Ruth. And as the story and book of Ruth unfolds, 
She will see how blessed she is with a daughter-in-law that supports her, that intercedes for her, that commits herself to her in ways that only describe God. And Ruth will bear her a son. That this book ends with the birth of a son. This book ends with the birth of a child of promise and hope. You wonder why I picked it for Christmas. While we'll focus on Ruth's faithfulness, what Ruth does in this moment, I'm looking at verses 16 and 17. It's hard to not just stare at this and want to sit with it and meditate with it. The truth is that most days we're actually not Ruth. The truth is we're probably closer to Naomi. And I say this for all the guys and men here and at home too, that we are Naomi. And let me say what I mean. That we're the ones that feel like we're without. That we're barren. That we're empty. That we don't have what we actually need. That we don't, we're lost in the midst of direction. And maybe God's put people in our lives, but we ultimately are seeking a purpose and understanding why has this happened the way this is happening Why do I have to wait? What am I supposed to do in the waiting? One uh, commentator reflecting on this point of the story says this, and it's a lot to sit with, but worth hearing, that here we're intended to see that when God is at work, bitter hopelessness can be the beginning of some surprising good. The bitter hopelessness can be the surprising good. We don't know what's going to happen. And it says this in the midst of terrifying fear and sadness for Ruth and Naomi. They finally have arrived back into Bethlehem, but they don't know where they're going. And it takes me back, and Kathy preaching last week really reminded me of this, and I wanted to at least share it and reflect on it, because I remember when we were, Christy and I were expecting our second child, and we had waited to tell our family, waited to tell our family, we decided that we were going to get together at a family reunion, so we put it off longer than we needed to so we could actually be in person. Because it's weird to tell huge news to people without being in person. And I, we get there, and the first night we're there, we, set, we let, the, let the cat out of the bag. This huge news. It's amazing, and the whole family is so excited. I have pictures of that night where we're excited with them. Our daughter, Ruth, is really, is, was really young, and, uh, but we were excited about what would be our son our son Gabriel. And, but that night, the unexpected, the, the scary happened where we woke up the following morning and all these signs were happening with Christy where we thought that she was miscarrying. And we had just told our family and we were not at home. We were in some other house with none of the resources around us. We were at home in the midst of a bunch of people who knew us And we thought that we were about to lose this precious gift and hope that God had given us. And then it was it was Sunday morning. We were with family on Sunday morning, and I had offered to lead a family worship time for all of our family. And I remember just how Christy was feeling, and I was feeling so overwhelmed, and then thinking, we still want to do something. We actually want to give voice to confess what we believe is happening, even though we thought the horrible, the worst was happening. And praise be to God, that was not what was happening. But I, I, I look at that and I think, what, 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 what's taking place? And for whatever reason, God led me to like sing. And we have like kids of all ages in our family. So I, I wanted to pick a song that like kids could really sing. And we sang together, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Uh, 
And I remember singing that with them. And I, I, I remember, honestly, praise be to God, the glorious, beautiful outcome. It was, you know, a ruptured clot of some kind, and it caused a lot of scare for us because we had had many friends and family who've lost, lost children along the way, and we were familiar with the grief, and we thought that that was the grief that was there for us. But I remember that, but I remember is actually sitting with family and singing that song and confessing together the hope of God's presence. Whatever was happening, and we didn't really know, whatever was happening would also be <laughs> helped through the hope of God's presence, that he would carry us through this unfortunate and scary time. And that's the way that we're intended to receive Ruth. We're intended to see Ruth in this place of emptiness, but also with the promise of God's coming, the promise that soon your emptiness and soon their emptiness will be filled because a king will be born. And it's important we don't just receive that hope as a good idea for the future. It's like, oh, this is a good idea. I like the way this story is going. Can the story end this way? It's important we don't just receive it that way. Because biblical hope is something different. People talk about hope in the world in very different ways. It's very wishful thinking. That is not biblical hope. I was looking at a, a, a teaching from John Piper where he's reflecting on biblical hope. And this is one of the ways he describes hope. Biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good to happen in the future. A confident expectation and a desire for something good to happen in the future, to expect something good to happen based on the character and purpose of God. Sometimes when people say they're hoping for something, the actual result is pretty passive. Have you ever experienced that? Oh, I'm hoping for this to happen, and that kind of means they don't do anything about it. <laughs> Actually expecting something to happen means you lean into the choices and the promises that God's gave you, and you expect it to happen based on who God is. You always hear the phrase, is the cup half empty or half full? Is the cup half empty or half full? We always, it gets referenced a little bit to maybe say a good amount about how you're relating to your circumstances, right? Is the cup half empty or half full? Or does the cup overflow? Does the cup overflow? While we wait, place your hope in the coming king. I want to take you to a place in 1 Peter that talks about hope because I think it immediately connects with this. The letter, Peter's letter, starts off with this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope and has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that will not perish, that will not spoil, it will not fade. Talking about that inheritance is why we talk about hope the way they would do, because that inheritance is sure. It is for you as you see the grace and mercy of Christ coming to you. And then what he says down a little further in this first chapter, he says this, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, not passive, but pretty aware, set your hope on the grace to be, to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. That hope is for you this morning. And what the invitation is, is to place your hope, expecting that God will bring good, 
That he's promised that he'll bring good and he will come. He will bring an end to all that we struggle with. Our pain, our doubts, the lack of clarity, the waiting, the agonizing waiting. It will come to an end. Because the cup overflows when we remember the past. So much of Ruth is thinking back to the matriarchs of the, of the Old Testament people. So much of Ruth is looking back at the past promises, past covenant, past examples of faithfulness. And we all in this room have the same We can look at countless examples of faithfulness and know that the cup does overflow in time. The cup also overflows when we know where the future is going. When we know where all this is going, that this is not the life we've been promised. We have the language of waiting and hoping because we know this isn't it. This is not it. We are waiting for a reality to come. And that is what I think about when I see Ruth and Naomi journeying back to Bethlehem. They're going back to Bethlehem, to a future. They don't know exactly what it is, but it makes you think about another woman's journey. It makes you think about another woman's journey going back to Bethlehem, only she's not going back with her mother-in-law. She's going back with her fiancé at the time, and she's pregnant. She goes back to Bethlehem. Ruth's story in Israel is very much intended to point to how David was born and become a king that was a king after God's own heart. But it also helps us to see Mary's witness. Mary, Jesus' mother. That Jesus is a descendant of Ruth, born through Mary's faithfulness. And they're born in the same town. Beth, well, Ruth was not born in, 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 in Bethlehem. But Naomi was. Born, connected to Bethlehem. And Ruth in this journey, in this moment, when she could choose to do a di- go a different way, she chooses to direct Naomi to the person of hope. Because she expects God will provide. She assumes God will make good on his promises. She knows that the hope is on the way. Because she acts as if the reality, that, as that reality is as certain as the sun will rise again tomorrow. Or it will be icy on the floor. Probably both. Ruth shows us how to place our hope in God by, witness, by witnessing to us the loving faithfulness of Jesus. Like Jesus, Ruth chooses to leave home. To go, to go be with a people that was not her people. She sacrifices her own self-interest. She goes out to the field and works hard. She, she provides rescue to Naomi. She is a surrogate daughter to Naomi and provides grandchildren, redemption, establishes honor in the family of God. And while I'd love to say we're like Ruth, like I've already said, we're more like Naomi. But let me tell you, if, you, if that resonates to you, and I believe it probably should resonate with all of us in some way, God with us, Emmanuel, the child of Emmanuel, was born for you. He was born for you. And just as he's pledged himself to you, he's inviting you to commit yourself to him. These verses here, 16 and 17, you can read them over and over and think how I would practice and meditate on these verses. Over and over, but... What, what, I hear and what I hear when I read this is what God says to us. He makes us his people. He commits, us, commits himself to us when we are not willing to follow through and commit to him. He dies the death that we would die. He is focused on us in a committed way that only shows how much he loves us. I'm going to invite the worship team to, to come up and lead us in a response, we are all also about to do communion. But let me just say this. Is your cup half empty or half full? Or is it overflowing? 
I invite you into that. And one of the ways I'd like to reflect, I'd invite you to have, um, invite you to have your communion supplies out, and I'm going to pray, and then I will, um, I'll lead us in a little reflection. Lord, we want to come before you honestly this morning. And I pray that, Lord, the gospel and Ruth preaches to us. That many of us, when we come before you, we are empty. We do feel lacking. We do feel lost. And at the same time, you offer fullness and hope to us in Jesus. Even if we really resonate with the story of lacking and being lost, we come back home to you. And you've committed yourself to us in ways that are impossible to understand, but it is faith and love that is embodied. It's not explained. So we come before you today in communion to basically make our confession to you that we're not trying to fill our own lives up, but we're actually looking to you for hope, for you for provision. So I pray, Lord, that you would offer and minister to that to everyone here today, because it is the word we need. In Jesus' name, amen. At the beginning of our service, the Wilderbore family, they led us in a little reading. It's an Advent reading. And I actually want to read that as a meditation for us and then lead us in communion this morning. And communion is an act of faith. It's a way in which we profess that Jesus died for us, that his body was broken for us, that his blood was poured out for us so that instead of having an empty cup, we would have a full one. Instead of our body being barren, it would be not just broken, but made whole. So let me read this, and I will read it slow and invite you to meditate on this. Lord of hope, as night workers long for the sunrise, we long for the coming of Christ. We yearn for your spirit to give us a glimpse of your glory, knowing that one day we will see in full. You know the suffering in our lives and throughout all the world, This weight is too much for us to bear alone. So today we choose today to place our hope in you. And we accept this meal and this table as a meal of hope and grace that leads us and directs us to you.